If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. So I grew up in an environment where at home it was chaotic and at school I was chaotic. Mm. I was worried about what people thought about me the whole time. Everything was turmoil. And I was told to do whatever it took to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously greater trauma happened when I was in high school, as it does. In high school, you know, normal kind of stuff. I was told I was too weird to be friends with the popular girls that I was told I needed to be friends with when I was younger in order to actually be a fully rounded human being worthy of love. I was like, okay, this is such an addict thing and it's very manipulative. I was like, if they think I'm weird, I'm going to show them weird. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Tony Becker, thank you for joining Flint Anderson, founder of Pain, and myself, Jason Lachance, here on the Don't Hide the Scars podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm great, guys. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat to you both, and I'm, I'm just looking forward to this. It's a true honor to be here, so thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, Look at this, Flint. We're going international again. Here we go. Tony in South Africa. I and, love it. And you were sharing something really insightful with us uh, through your work, through your recovery. You're now going to Narconon meetings and talking with the families, you know, which is so in line with what we're doing here. I think it's I think it's vital, you know, like the way I put it is as an addict, I went through my addiction with my eyes closed and all I thought about was me. My family went through my addiction with their eyes open and all they thought about was me. Mm-hmm. I feel like families remember everything. You know, they hold on to everything we did in active addiction and they remember it. I don't remember what they remember or how they remembered it. And they really live with that trauma. And they also just accumulate so much guilt and so much shame around it. And I feel it's so important that they're given a voice. I feel it's important they're able to share their stories. They're able to face their truths and feel less alone. Because as addicts, you know, we have communities. We are a community, recovering addicts. And I feel like parents, loved ones of addicts need that same community and need to know there's hope for them too. Absolutely. You know, these these parents don't have a real clue of what addiction is. Like you said, they see what they see. It is traumatic to them. They don't want their loved ones going through this, but they don't understand addiction. And most of the time I start out with the fact that you are never going to fully understand the the addiction. You're not going to fully understand, but we're going to get you as close as we possibly can to understanding. Because, again, in our addiction, it's all about us. After our addiction and recovery, it's all about us. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about us all, all the time. And um, and and what I like about what look, I love Narnon, I love everything about the 12 step program and all these different things. But what we do here is you know, we sit in a circle like everybody else does, but we crosstalk. We give suggestions. We throw it out there. These parent meetings, and I'd love to have you join us on a Zoom, all right, because we, we we do it in person and a Zoom. I'd love to have you join us on a Wednesday evening if you can. I would love to. Love to. 
Great, great. We'll just we'll make sure we set that up. Yeah. Um, because again, these these parents they they are in such pain that they don't know how to get out of it, and. <laughs> and and it's interesting whenever we get a new parent in for the first time other parents will come up to that new parent and go just strap in okay because he's <laughs> he's he's going to he's he's going to say some stuff to you tonight that you may not like but if you keep coming back you're going to get through this Man. because tony i don't mince any words with these parents that we don't have time anymore with fentanyl out there we don't have any time to waste Absolutely. And can I, like, even just on that, um, I've been trying to get my mom to go to a meeting. Mm. And I have been in recovery for 10 years. So I've been sober for 10 years. Good for you. Thank you so much. I've had the chance to work on my recovery. I go to my meetings, I do the work, and I love it, and I'm passionate about it. But to this day, my mom still struggles with even saying the word addiction. She Mm. still struggles with me mentioning my drug of choice or anything regarding that because she just hasn't dealt with it and she's scared to deal with it and she's scared to face it. You know, I think she puts a lot of blame on herself and she also has a lot of resentment toward me that she's still scared to work through. And my goal is to get her to a meeting like one of yours. Um, If you guys do that or anything. We do. She, she needs it so badly. These parents, um, my mom's never faced it in 10 years. She's never faced it. It breaks my heart the way it does. Well, and I know for me, you know, you both know my story, you know, my dad. So my dad's easy to converse about it because he's been there, you know, mm-hmm. hardcore. So he gets it. But my mom, it is still kind of a touchy area. Sure. Certain things that I'll bring up, you know, for instance, as I've spoken about with not just drugs and alcohol, but pornography and the yeah. sexual stuff, my mom will shut it real sure. quick. And I and I know it's a pr- uh, protection mechanism because once my dad got clean, boy, my mom changed a lot and shut mm-hmm. down. I think she exhausted everything in her to get help get my dad clean. Sure. You know? So I, I know what you're saying. That's a great word, by the way. You know, they are exhausted, yeah. you know, just totally exhausted. And you said something very important b- before we started. You know, they don't forget. Yeah. They will forgive. But they don't forget. And I've had instances, you know, 10 years later, 12 years later, 15 years later, where, you know, sons, my sons or somebody will go, God, you know what? You know that you got a facial expression right now that uh, tells me you might be using a little something, right? So relatable. My mom will come up to me and look me in the eye, like come so close to me (laughs) in the eye and be like, are you okay? Are things okay with you? Because, you know, they really, they're so terrified. They are terrified to lose us again. Yeah. Uh, We've uh, had some great conversations with people, and and I know you got some insight on this as uh, trauma, the gateway drug. Um, Can you share a little bit of your history and kind of leading down to where really the substance abuse started for you? Absolutely. This is also something I speak about quite a lot, you know. We, and I also, it was something we discussed previously where, you know, all trauma is relative. And no matter my trauma or someone else's trauma, anything can kind of lead you through that path. For me, there were, my traumas were significant within the family. So, For example, I grew up in a household where my parents were married, but they hated each other, typical kind of family. (laughs) (laughs) 
normal run of the normal. That's just normal stuff. <laughs> it's normal globally. So, right. Parents just hated each other. Right. Um, but and then the doors would get closed at night. People would be screaming, shouting, and you know you get scared as a kid. You're constantly walking on eggshells. Mm-hmm. But really, there's two significant things that happened in my youth. When I was around 12 years old, my father had a really, really bad skiing accident. It's going to sound hilarious. Okay, so he hit a tree. Uh, went flying into the air, skiing on water, and it's actually not hilarious as I'm saying it now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the water. And um, he broke all his ribs. He punched a line, a kidney, a spleen, ended up in ICU. He was in a coma for three weeks. Wow. And they took us in. We were children. They took myself and my, my brother, and he's three years younger than me, to say goodbye to him. Mm-hmm. And he he survived. He survived like against all odds, but he had to relearn everything. You know, he had to relearn. He was a strong, strong, stoic man, very, very sporty in like just living his best life young. And he had to relearn everything. So, you know, came home and started walking again and his mental health declined really, really rapidly soon after because everything he knew and everything he identified himself as was kind of ripped out from under him. And that caused a lot of tension in the home. Um, you know, relearning how to walk, the pain he was in, a lot of the anger, because he held he held a lot of anger, my dad, and it just manifested every single day. It seemed to get worse and worse and worse, and the family home got worse and worse and worse. And when I was in school, I mean, I went to a school that was very looks-orientated, very money-oriented, mm. and I don't come from a family that's wealthy. Um well, my, yeah, I, I don't come from a family that's wealthy in comparison to the other people I went to school with. And I just felt judged all the time. And I never felt pretty enough. I never felt good enough. And my mom had a best friend, this woman, who's who was the mother of my best friend. And she was my bully. An older woman, an adult mm. was my bully. Wow. She would tell me, I'm ugly. I'm not, I'm not pretty enough. I need to do this. I need to do that. Change what I look like. I need to do whatever it takes to be popular, whatever it takes to fit in. And that kind of stuff sticks with you when you're that young. Yeah, sure does. From the age of nine, I started wearing makeup. I started worrying about what I looked like. I started worrying about what people thought about me. And it became body dysmorphic disorder. It just, it turned into that as I was growing up. And to this day, it's still something I struggle with, the body dysmorphic disorder side of things. So I grew up in an environment where at home it was chaotic and at school I was chaotic. Mm -hmm. I was worried about what people thought about me the whole time. Everything was turmoil. And I was told to do whatever it took to fit in. Yeah. You know, mask after mask after mask. And so those were two traumas when I was younger. And then obviously greater trauma happened when I was in high school, as it does. In high school, you know, normal kind of stuff. I was told I was too weird to be friends with the popular girls that I was told I needed to be friends with when I was younger in order to actually be a fully rounded human being worthy of love. So I think it's the addict in me. I was like, okay, this is such an addict thing and it's very manipulative. I was like, if they think I'm weird, I'm going to show them weird and I'm going to... The narrative, exactly. <laughs> By the way, I like your style. Okay, I really do. Thank uh, you. Thank you. I'm trying. But in school, I really tried. Like, I went back to school the next year with, like, jet black hair, eyeliner, like, right. heavy metal lyrics scrawled on my bag in Tipex. Like, I was just like, you will fear me. 
I am in <laughs> yeah. powerful now. And I did whatever I could to to be powerful. Like I didn't want those girls to not notice me. I wanted them to notice me on my own terms sure. and take control of that. And then the body dysmorphic disorder got worse and actually developed into anorexia. So I had I developed full-blown anorexia at the age of 14, and that carried with me throughout my life. Um, and then just to, I'll just go through, I'll run through some trauma. Sorry, it's like quite a <laughs> of trauma. Um, got into my first relationship when I was in high school, and it was the first ever relationship I had been in, and it was for four years, and was a very emotionally abusive relationship and I didn't know any better that's what I thought love was I was told what to look like what to wear I was left on the side of the road if the if a guy looked at me and this guy saw a guy look at me just in passing I would be left on the side of the road um just it was torture I was tortured I was scared to go anywhere he would circle my house at night drive around the house oh, just geez. to make sure I was coming. and the worst part is no one did anything Right. No one yeah. told me that that's not normal. Um, and also he was like quite a beloved, you know, the good catch. Like this guy's a good catch mm. in my community, especially. And I just, I thought that was normal. I thought that's what a relationship was. I thought a relationship was chaos. I mean, I grew up with it at home and then it right. happens to me. Isn't that what it normally is? Right. And eventually I, you know, at this point I was drinking. I started drinking at the age of 13. I, I'm Jewish. I grew up in a Jewish community. So we went, you know, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, the sure, whole thing. Man. Part of what we do. So Mazel tov, everybody. <laughs> when you're 12. <laughs> but um, yeah, so the first time I drank, I actually blacked out. And I thought that was also normal. I thought sure. everyone blacked out. Drank. Like, isn't that what, what normal, isn't that a part of drinking? You know? Right, right. Um, but when I got together with this guy, he didn't like me drinking and he didn't like other people looking at me when I was drinking or in a club environment. So I was too scared to drink. And when I left school, I went to varsity, to university um, to study drama, uh, which makes sense. Sure. And <laughs> had the courage to end things with him. And when I ended things with him, I could drink again. You know, I could really like go all out. And the night we broke up, I had just downed a bottle of vodka and I don't remember anything after that. Right. And that's when things just really, really spiraled and more trauma occurred in that time. In fact, there's two significant things I want to touch on. One I've only started recently talking about because um, it was very difficult for me to speak about. But um, the first one was, Jason, I think we've spoken about this before. When I was... After this first relationship, I met another guy and I really loved him. I really loved him. It was someone I really cared about and someone I trusted. And we were together and I said no. It was the second person I'd ever been with. And I said no, I wasn't ready to have sex. And he just went for it. He just went mm. for it. And I didn't, I didn't scream. I didn't shout. I didn't fight. I was just like, no, no, no. And then I just let it happen, you know? Mm. And in those kinds of moments, I didn't I didn't know if it was real. I didn't know if I was dramatizing a situation in my head or if it's not as bad as it is because he's my boyfriend and this is okay, you know. And I just kind of lay there. He went to the kitchen and I was sitting there and I was like, I mean, I was crying and I didn't know if it was real or not. And when I got up, I walked to the kitchen and he was crying. And he oh. said to me, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. 
which for some reason made it worse because it mm. made me feel sorry for him. And it made me feel bad that that it happened, but it also made it very real, yeah, which sure. is and I went home that night. I told my mom, I told my family, and nothing was nothing was done again because he said sorry to me. I was like defending him almost. And to this day, I actually don't hate this person. And it makes me so mad. <laughs> it's like really, it angers me. I'm like, yeah. that's how I feel so manipulated by the situation. It's crazy. Um, and then after that is really when things just, things just went off the rails, you know, I'm, alcohol blacking out writing cars off um putting myself in really dangerous situations and one night this is something i really struggle to talk about but one night i went out with a group well, with a guy i was on a date with a guy who i knew and i trusted and we went to this club and we had like a car bar you know there was alcohol in the boot of the car got really drunk and that's the last thing i remember mm. the next thing i remember is Outside, so here's my my house is out, like across from my house is another house. I remember being woken up on the sidewalk there by my mother. Hmm. And I don't know if I was dressed or if I wasn't dressed or what she saw or what she found that night, but she took me inside and I had been taken advantage of that night. And it's still something my mother and I have not really discussed openly to this day. Um, and that's why I feel like these meetings we were speaking about previously are so important sure. because something really terrible happened to me and I don't know what happened. And I don't think she's ready to tell me what she saw or what right. happened. Right. Um, and I feel like also there's a lot of like blame that can be thrown around. Like you were drunk, what happened? But, and uh, she would never say that, but this is me being scared to bring it up with her and discuss it with her. So those kinds of traumas, will stick with you, especially when you feel like you're to blame. Because in all those instances, I felt like I was to blame. New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional healthcare, treating each client with compassion and respect, in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. Well, we're going to throw some stuff in there too. Uh, before we get to that one, Tony, you know, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying and it's really why Flint wanted this name, Don't Hide the Scars. Yep. You know, because yeah. if we sit and, and, you know, I mean, a multitude of traumas, Flint shared his story, you know, mine, because we message each other all the time and kind of work through through things. That's yeah. a, that's that's the power of recovery. It's like you said, we're a community. I didn't think one of my 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 good friends that I could talk to would be in South Africa. <laughs> it's amazing. But, you know, when Tony's talking about this stuff, Flint, it makes me think about what we see here and what you try to get across to people is it's not the kid under the bridge. Right. It's not necessarily the total downtrodden family. We are seeing this biggest impact in our richest school districts here yeah. uh, where this is going on. And, and you know, there's a young lady that has the same story as you, a young man. Um, it's just uh, 
it's crazy. It's it's crazy that this is this is a global thing, people. This yep. really yep. happens so many different places. And um Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah, Tony, I, I really want to hear this this third piece that you have, but you said something that really in regards to your dad that really mm. kicked in with me. You know, I I, I was I, I want to say this was 2014 that I, I couldn't walk from, I couldn't walk 10 feet without my legs hurting. And for, for a year, it was my back, it was my knees, it was whatever, we couldn't find it. And I finally went to this one doctor and he said, my God, you're getting no blood flow to your, your lower extremities. And, uh, and I wound up having to have another uh, aortic femoral bypass surgery which, you know, so I'm originally cut from neck down to the middle, right? <laughs> now they just finished the zipper and I call it neck to nuts. Okay. <laughs> then I've just got this, this, this one slice all the, all the way down. But my, my, my point was, I remember specifically my best friend went with me. He always does when I have these surgeries, my, my, my wife, and I'm walking into the hospital at 5.00 AM. All of a sudden I am pissed. I mean, I am pissed beyond belief. They take me to the room. I'm starting to put on the gown. I'm laying down. And all of a sudden, everything kicks in to these to these memories of all my surgeries before the anesthesia and the pain afterwards. And, you know, and especially when you're dealing with heart stuff, you know, they're cracking your chest and this is going to be a nightmare. I lost my shit in that hospital room. I'm yelling at the doctors. I'm yelling at my wife. I'm yelling at my friend. Get me the fuck out of here. I don't care if I die. I can't go through this again. You know, I mean, it was a shit show in there for a while. It's amazing how these conversations we have with somebody in South Africa, okay, that 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 brought that out. I mean, that's important stuff right there, yeah. you know, but it also reminded me of your dad. He was an active guy. You know, he was, he was a sports guy. And then all of a sudden, man, you just get kicked in the balls and now you are, you're, you're, you're not done, but it's going to take so much work to get back yeah. that you've got all these feelings. You don't know how to address them. I, you know, I, I just had to go off on that for a minute because that's important stuff. Yeah. So important. Wait till you hear the rest of the story. You're right. I'm, I'm, I'm on pins and needles now. No, that the, the the rest of like related to that comes later. But like that just just so you know that really really touched something like in my soul, man. That touched something. Mm. Um, already getting emotional. That's okay. <laughs> it's a, hey, I've cried on here before. Yep. It's okay. Oh, it's, it's it's fine. We can cry. We're allowed to cry now. Yes, we are. Um, Oh, so now I'm getting to the other trauma. Oh, guys, I'm sorry for what's to come. So, <laughs> um, my my cousin, she was my like my sister. We grew up together, ten months apart. The most amazing, the most amazing human being that I've ever met or will ever meet. And she, so I ended up going into my first rehab shortly after the last traumas I discussed with you, and they were for alcohol. Um, I went to this rehab and I got out after a week. And in a way, I'm glad I did. You know, when you go to your first rehab, you think you instantly cured. I thought right. I was instantly cured. So I was like, I'm done. I'm going to leave in a week. I'll be fine. And I left and my cousin came to see me that night and she told me she had a headache. And I was like, you, you know, I'm sorry, go home, rest. Anyway, long story short, she ended up in a coma. Mm. That night she she had a seizure she had men and she had contracted meningitis 
at the age of 23 and was in a coma for three weeks. And my family had to let her go after three weeks. Ugh. And the most beautiful young 23 year old, you know, she lost, she, she lost her life. And what's significant about this is that at that time, her sister was eight months pregnant. Her other sister was writing her finals for her final year of high school to get into university. And obviously her mother and her father had just lost their child and addict me who got out of rehab, who had just gone through this massive trauma with her cousin, her sister, her best friend, who I promised my cousin while she was in a coma, I promise you, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to do anything anymore. Everything's going to be fine. As soon as she died, it was the perfect excuse yep. for me to go and just mess up more than I ever had before. Yeah. You know, yeah. I didn't I didn't want it. It was my it was my excuse. You guys will know all about that. Yeah. Yeah. All too well. All too well. Many an excuse. And I think that's uh, thank you for sharing that. That's an important thing that that and, and I'm sure you talk about it in the parent meetings is we do. We look for any excuse yeah. to continue to play the victim so that we can go and use our drug of choice as if we have a choice. But it just is the way it is. It's shitty. It's terrible. It lacks complete humanity, but it's what we do. Right. Exactly. Hell, even if the Green Bay Packers lost, that was an excuse for me to go use still. I, I mean, right. you know, my favorite sports team, you lose. Oh, hell, I'll just drop five more. You know, makes sense. Makes so much sense. Like, you know, we will find any, I would find anything and to have something so big happen, you know, it was like, it was like the addict to me was like, actually like, I can use this, you know, no one's going to say anything to me. No one's, what are they going to say? You're acting out. Oh, you don't know what it's like. My family just lost a child, you know, like it's, it's so sad to think about it. And I just, I used it to my advantage. It's, it was a really really dark time for my family losing a child to something mm -hmm. like meningitis and then watching another child yeah actively go out and harm themselves you know um and i sorted out hey i sorted out like as soon as she she passed away i met a guy who i knew was a drug addict mm -hmm. he didn't hide it it wasn't like a surprise and i knew exactly what i was getting myself into and i went straight for it with my eyes wide open it comes back to the, like you were saying early on, you know, that understanding that, oh, well, this is just our belief that this is just how relationships are. And, you know, our belief system and the things that people go through with recovery, and we've talked about rewiring your brain, your neural pathways is having to change your thinking altogether because, you know, the drinking drug problem. It's a small part of it. Greater is the thinking problem. And if you don't do the work on the way you think, you will continue to use. And like you're saying, I was like you. I snorted people. I it, it, <laughs> no, matter, no, matter, no matter how bad I was like, oh, I know exactly who this gal is. But oh, I God. ran for it because, hey, it had that rush, right? That danger. Uh, Activate every chemical in my brain, would you, another person? And it's shitty. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is such good stuff because – it does it. It activates this something in us that that it's like running into a burning building. You know, I'm I'm going to run into the burning building. You know, I I would go from Fresno to Tijuana, 
uh, I've told you this story, you know, where I put a nine millimeter behind me and walk across the border. This is pre 9-11, of course. Right. And, and load up on on every narcotic I could get south of the border, walk mm-hmm. back across with that gun in my pants and didn't give a shit if I got shot at or not. You know, it was it was like I was an adrenaline junkie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just strange stuff that we do. I could relate to that, you know, and also you don't care if you live or die. It's almost you like, don't. you know, there was, was it Hunter S. Thompson? I'm trying to think, you know, we, we kind of glamorize these people. Well, I did. I glamorized yeah. all these people, read fear and loathing in Las Vegas and all of that and wanted to, and it was, I can't think of the quote, but basically it was kind of like, if I go down, I want to go down in flames. Like, right. I, like I wanted that, I wanted that story and I wanted, and I didn't care. I didn't care if I died because it's cool. I'm living this life that's just, you know, ferocious and wild and um, weird. Man. You know, like those girls, you were weird. I was like, I'm re- I really took that too far. I'm onto that for way too long. <laughs> but but you're right. We do. We tell out our our own story, right? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be this rock star esque story that you know, and it's like if you really break it down, I mean. You know, some of my favorite rock stars that, that aren't here anymore. It's a sad fucking ending. Let's yeah. look at Elvis. Yeah. It was a sad ending. You yeah. know, uh, Bon Scott, singer ACDC. Right. It wasn't, uh, man, he went on to make more great music. No, he died in his car. He asphyxiated because he was drinking too much. Right. You know, it's like it, it's not a glamorous way to live. Well, you know, it, it also, I don't know why I just thought of this, but but especially with parents that, you know, that every one of them thinks that their kids have never done drugs and they never, and they never will. And the last couple of days, I don't know if you guys have seen this documentary on Netflix. It's Woodstock 99. I don't think it's out here yet, but we're going to, I'll watch. You, you need, you guys need to watch this because you know, obviously Woodstock of 69, that was my era, hate to say. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh. but he- here they come in with Woodstock 99. And of course, they want this to be the whole Woodstock experience again. But but you're bringing in Red Hot Chili Peppers. OK, you're, you're bringing in all these guys that are just I mean, the point to this story is that when you see it, this was the biggest cluster of all time. They burned this place to the ground, all right, afterwards. And every, and there were kids, all right? These were were 14-year-olds to, obviously, to 40-year-olds and up, but the majority were 14 to 40. And, I mean, drug-induced, so out of it. I I, I mean, it's no wonder we are in this mess that we're in today. And I think parents need to see that movie just from the standpoint of, oh, hell, that that could have been my kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, anyway, I, I just had I just had to throw that one out there. But when that comes to you, watch it, because you basically have 300,000 people that are totally out of their minds for three full days. Wow. Shocked. The, and I can't get shocked over too much stuff. I, <laughs> I, I really can't. Yeah, but but this one, I'm just watching this thing going, holy shit. I did. Of course, 99. I didn't know Monday from Friday uh, because I was so out of it. I don't even remember Woodstock 99. But I'll tell you what, it's something worth watching. You might have actually been there. 
I could have been. <laughs> it was in the background of the documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I and I did go to one at, at Ontario Speedway in down in down in Southern yeah, California. Yeah. Number, I think it was 1973. Yeah, it was it was three days of you know deep purple and and right. oh god. It, How were the bands, Flint? I, I don't fucking. Remember. I don't fucking remember. All I know is we were throwing milk bottles, you know, everywhere. I, oh, I don't know. Yeah, Lord. what a disaster. That's amazing. <laughs> So at this point, though, I mean, you're really starting to dig in. You have every justifiable thing to get back to using. And now you've hooked up with the guy that is the drug user and you know it. And at this point, you are in digging into full fledged. Yeah. Let's get hardcore substance abuse going. Absolutely. So I remember like one night I was very drunk. We went to a club or something and then we went back to his house and he took out a bag. And now, so there's a drug in South Africa called CAT, which is methcathinone. So mm -hmm. yeah, I can see it's very interesting. <laughs> C-A-T. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will tell you it's K-H-A-T, but that's the leaf. It's C-A-T. Um, and so I thought it was CAT, which is quite a, it's quite a common drug in South Africa, a very dangerous drug, one incredibly toxic drug. And I thought it was that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I know a lot of people that do this drug. I'll just do it. So I did it. And then three days later, after being awake for three days, um, I was like, I can feel my heart pounding through my chest. Like, what is going on? And he was like, oh, by the way, that's actually crystal meth. Mm. And so that's what how my drug use started. So it started with crystal meth and it went between crystal and cat the whole time. It was one or the other or both at the same time. And things just obviously quickly, quickly, quickly spiraled into absolute chaos crossing every moral boundary i ever thought i had sure. going even further than that just becoming a, a person i mean i didn't know who i was either i had lost my identity in high school when i was trying to be someone i wasn't the whole time right so when i made drugs my identity even those morals that i took with me through high school like they just i threw them out the window and started creating uh, moral like these boundaries that just kept going further and further and I would just cross them and cross them and cross them and just became someone I never thought I would ever be and I did things I never thought I would be capable of doing um, <clears throat> and I just I changed very rapidly my my mom had to deal with a lot of it I was still staying with her at the time and my dad and my mom had gotten divorced at this point thank god and um, <laughs> but my dad never really my dad never really got to see the addiction as much as my mom did you know she really saw it she saw she saw me dying she saw me seizuring in a bedroom she saw me doing whatever it took to get out the house i stole from my mom i wasn't home for like weeks at a time being at this guy's house or at the trap house or something like that and um she just never knew where i was half the time she was just always concerned and always worried that I was dead and she had every right to be concerned and my life just went to it just became chaos like I was building a career as an actress um I'd studied got my honors um got a role in a, a tv show in South Africa and I shut down the set because I left to go get drugs and I didn't go back the next day to refilm so I like just completely lost my place in the industry as well wow yeah. everything that i dreamt of i just turned to dust yeah because this wasn't a minor show though either just to let people know in south africa you were cast on a show that would be a pretty big equivalent show for where you're at yeah. 
massive, it was a massive, massive show in South Africa. And ironically, I was playing a drug dealer. No, <laughs> Typecast on this one. Yeah. I have good insight into this. Uh, I went, I just, it was Stanislavski technique. I was like, I'm just going to know what it's like. But um, <laughs> no, okay. so I lost, I lost that role. I literally shut down filming. Um and it was chaos. I lost everything. I lost yeah. everything. I lost all my friends, my good friends, the friends that cared about me. I completely isolated from them. I just, I, I made their lives hell and they had to take a step back. And obviously you curate friends that you use with, curate yeah. friends that want to be in your presence when you're high. And then they slowly disappear because they're kind of managing and I just, slipped slipped further and further and further and ended up just isolating and using in a room or in my car or in a parking lot right by yourself exactly exactly completely alone no sense of i i think that's normal for all of us you know it's it's especially you know what i want to say especially but with opioid use you know that's not that's not a drug that that you're going to go out to a bar and have a bunch of fun with. I mean, you, you do kind of starting out, you know, but, but in the end, I mean, Hey man, all, all I wanted to do was make sure I wasn't getting dope sick, you know, and, and I was hiding and sneaking. And like you said, you know, using in your car, going to a bathroom, going into your bedroom, just, just be by yourself. Yeah. I didn't yeah. want to be around anybody. Yeah. No, you, and you don't want to share. I'm not sharing. No, God, God, no. <laughs> You know, I, I, I always I always love those parents that that go, you know, well, when I found these pills, my son said they were his friends. And I go, first of all, <laughs> nobody is going to give their pills to your kid to hold for somebody. Uh-huh. OK, it just doesn't work that way. Wow. That just gave me a flash. So I had this girlfriend when I was living in Monterey and I know she had dabbled with drugs prior to us dating. But I just recalled this. And one time after we were out, this is well before my alcoholism really kicked in. Uh, you know, I was the one that was up early and I was like, wow, she was a little weird last night. Her friends were, and I go in the medicine cabinet looking for it. And there's a bottle with some powder in it with somebody else's name on it. Oh, my friend left it and I wrote it off, <laughs> but I was journaling maybe a couple of years ago and I had remembered that. And it was like, wow, you saying that I'm like, no, in hindsight, <laughs> this person was using the whole fucking time. Whole I was time. just stupid. Whole what, time, right. what addiction was even growing up in a home of addiction, right. you know, because mine had yet to really kick in. You know, I was the guy that this is still fun. I'm still socially using because that's alcohol. Right. This is normal. <laughs> yeah, I remember actually the first time my mom actually found my drug of choice. She, I don't know what I was doing. I was probably just paranoid running from shadow people or something. Anyway, she went through my purse and she found like a bag. And, you know, like it was like in one way you could just, anyway. So she found something and she was like, what is this? Whose is this? What is this? And I just straight up with a deadpan face blamed someone else. And told I was holding it for a friend of mine. Like the friend that I decided to blame was the most innocent, innocent person but and i wasn't thinking at all and realized my mom is friends with her mom so oh, my mom shit. she's like i'm gonna phone her mom right now i'm like oh no don't, don't, uh, don't. <laughs> and then like the lies and then i went to rehab the next day one of the first <laughs> second rehab but um yeah we just throw it out it's not mine it's someone else's of course yeah what what really at the point though 
kicked in for you that the that was the rock bottom that was the thing that stuck that made you want to live so my rock bottom it happened it happened in rehab mm. so i had been in and out of rehab and at this point i was basically living in a vehicle in my car in my friend's parking lot um just staying there and it's not that i didn't have anywhere to go i could have gone home i didn't mm. want to go to my mom i wanted this life for myself i wanted to use in peace and this person whose parking lot it was, was actually very concerned. And I was obviously, you know, a big problem to his life. Like, what is this girl doing? But anyway, my mom managed to find out where I was. And she called me to come home to get a drug test. And I said, okay, I'll come the next day. So I literally went to like a pharmacy that was in the area the next day. I was, high, I was not well at all. And I tried to steal a drug test to try to figure out how I could fake it. But I got caught and they were like, escorted me out anyway. So I went home and my mom did a drug test. Obviously, it came out positive for everything. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm going to go see dad. So I went to my dad and I thought I could manipulate and play them off each other and say, mom's being insane. You know, this is a horrible environment. Um, and as soon as he saw me, you know, it was it was no go. You mm -hmm. You can't hide how bad the issue is. And he locked me in a bathroom that night. I went to the bathroom. He locked me in the bathroom and he phoned a rehab and he had phoned a rehab I had never been to before. What was different was this rehab was run basically exclusively by recovering addicts who were uh, counselors and everything. And you can't bullshit a bullshitter. Right. right. I managed to do that, like, you know, in all these other facilities. And I got there the next day. He took me there and he had never been involved in taking me to rehab ever. Um, I got there, tried to manipulate my way out of it. He was like, no, you're staying here. And I went there and two weeks in, my kidneys started to fail. Mm -hmm. And I got really, really, really ill at the rehab and they took me to a hospital. And I was in the hospital for a week, a good week. And if I had had access to a cell phone at that point, I would have called the dealer or sure. I would have called my ex-boyfriend because I, I, didn't, I didn't want sobriety. It was the last thing I wanted. I thought I was going to live like this. I was going to die like this. This was it. Mm -hmm. um, went back to the rehab. And in a group session, we were sitting um, with everyone. And for me, this is the moment that shifted everything. It wasn't a giant shift. It happened slowly after this point. But we were sitting in a group setting. And the counselor was asking me about myself. And I was telling my sob story, speaking on all my traumas and then building up to the massive trauma of my cousin's death, you know, just telling it like in this heartfelt way and tears and the whole thing. And she looked at me, a recovering addict herself, and she looked me dead in the eye, deadpan. And she said, so how does it feel having disrespected the memory of your dead cousin? Whoa. And she said it like that. And I had never been self-aware. I don't think since I was a kid, I just had no sense of self-awareness. I was always the victim, always in my head. And in that moment, I really, really sat with it. It could have gone either way. Like I wanted to hit her, you know, I wanted to get violent, but I sat with it and I thought about it. And I was like, this woman's right. You know, I used my cousin's death as an excuse to mess up my life way more than ever. Put my family triple, quadruple their trauma of losing a child. And watch them watch me slowly die. I'd just been in a hospital with my kidneys in pre-renal failure. And my auntie's sitting there having just lost a child and watching me die. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when things started to change for me. And I really started to do the work. And I started to stop acting 
You know, I remember when I was in rehab, you know how our parents, parents and loved ones can sometimes send you letters and they read it out in group. Yep. My brother wrote, my brother who had completely, completely written me off, by the way, at this point, completely. I was basically dead to him and he had every right to. I put that that poor kid through absolute hell. He wrote a letter and all it said was, Tony, this isn't drama school anymore. This is real life. Grow up. Wow. And yeah, that, that kid, that kid knew what was up. But it was <laughs> like, it was all these hard truths that made me see I had been acting my whole life, you know, just sure. mask after mask after mask. And I wasn't always the victim. I had spent a really large portion of my life victimizing. Mm -hmm. And that's for me when the step work came in, you know, the 12 step program, that's when things really started to shift for me. And then one day at a time, you know, I was in the rehab. I went from the rehab, from the primary facility to secondary, to tertiary, to a halfway house and to sober living. And I just carried on living a sober life. And now 10 years later, I've been sober every day just for today, you know, up until this point and hopefully tomorrow and hopefully the next day. Yeah. But um, I did it through really putting in the work and sitting with those uncomfortable that is that is so important what you what you said you put in the work mm -hmm. you know look recovery rates at least in the united states are 7 to 10% that's that's a that's a crappy number you know and it and i can tone that to the fact that people just don't put in the work yeah. you know yeah. um but but there's all these little moments in in our in in our lives that will make perfect sense to us. And, and one of them was when you, when you said that about your, about your brother, I remember my best friend, Rich, you know, who flew me down to Betty Ford. He, he, he walks me in and he looks at me and he says, I love you. But if you ever wind up in the hospital due to your drug addiction, I will never, ever speak to you again. He goes, do you get that? Now, I had just taken about 42 Vicodin from Fresno to Palm Springs. It's a three-hour flight. And, um, and and for whatever reasons, that stuck. Yeah. That just stuck. Now, I also you know, attribute my, a lot of my sobriety to, yes, the fact that I did the work. But I attribute it to my family. Okay? Yeah. You, you know, I, I really do. But, but even then it wasn't the things my family was saying. It was from somebody that was outside of my family. That's yeah. it. But man, did that one just stick with me. One of the things I want to ask Tony, cause you, you highlight all the way up through sober living, how long until you actually left sober living from when you entered rehab? It was basically two years of my life. Perfect. So it was, yeah, it was uh, two years, even after the sober house, a bunch of the, a bunch of us that stayed at the sober house, got our own place and mm -hmm. moved in together just because, you know, we really wanted to slowly reintegrate. We mm -hmm. really wanted to do it slowly and only two and a half or two and a half years in, um, I actually started going out and learning my boundaries and learning, Hey, yeah. I can go to this place and I can leave when I want. Like I really allowed myself the time to do it because all the other times I just kept relapsing and I really wanted to do it properly, even as uncomfortable as it was. And what helped me was the recovery community in those years, you know, those two years, because I had nothing, I had no one left. I had to keep myself busy. I couldn't go to the places I used to go to at that point and I wasn't ready to. So I just started building connections within 
uh, the recovery community itself. And when I was ready to branch past that, you know, I started building a career, started building a life. Then I was able to find people that weren't not normal, and I put that in inverted commas, <laughs> people that weren't addicts, people who hadn't been through it. And I could find the friends that real, real friends, real solid, solid people that just, because for the first time I'd gotten to know who I was in those two years, I could find people that I wanted to be around and that we, that mutually cared about each other without it having to be transactional, yep. which yep. was, and that takes time. And that's so important with that last part that without it being transactional, mm -hmm. doing just because it's the right thing to do, no matter who's looking or not. Exactly. And thank you for sharing that, Flint. We need to send that to all the insurance companies in the United yeah. States and every politician that doesn't get what we tout that. Right. Guess what? You're 28 days, you're 30 days. It's bullshit. This takes yep. many a people much longer. And like in your case, two years, yep. let alone two and a half years before it's like, okay, I'm ready for boundaries, which part of the boundary thing is people are going to test it and you have to learn to put it down. Right. You know, right. it's, it's such a process. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, it is. Well, Tony, I'll tell you what, I'm sitting here and my mind is going a thousand miles an hour right now because I would really, really like to have you on our zoom meeting as many times as you want. Okay. To talk to these parents I'm also thinking, you know, because you were so passionate about this, that maybe you could start some sort of parent meeting in South Africa. I can join in on Zoom on yours. All right. And we can kind of work in tandem here um, and try to get this thing. So but I, but I think it would be important if you if you looked at how we format ours and what and what we do and see if you like it, because I guarantee it, you're, 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 you're going to like it, but man, what a, I I've just been thinking about that over the last five minutes or so. Um, what do you think? I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about, like for real, when we started speaking about it, because I feel like what's important is also the crosstalk, like you yes. mentioned within those groups, because I know parents have so not even parents, loved ones, whoever it is, all loved ones, right so many questions you know and just want to be validated in what they're feeling and to also understand their role in lots of things and there's just really not that many spaces available there really aren't and it's right. so necessary in south africa it is so it's necessary everywhere and if something like that yeah perfect because again i have never come across anybody anywhere that are that have the format of the of the family meeting that we have yeah. i i just i just don't know of of one you can also go to and we'll send you the information i've you know i've got a new personal website that jason will send you the information of course that links to all the pain stuff you know so you could at least have something to base you know what you're telling people, I guess, yeah. but you guys can set that up. But uh, yeah, I think that would be just wonderful. You know, I speak to a pair, especially on my, I've got a TikTok platform and on my TikTok platform, it's obviously recovery based, but I really spent a lot of my focus on parents and on the loved ones of addicts. And it, I really would like to let them know that this exists as well. You know, well, I mean, we can join, we can join anybody on zoom. I mean, it, it's, yeah. 
blast it out there. Let's do this. Thing. Well, well, and you were telling me that when we were chatting, uh, there's nothing like like what we are a nonprofit that exists to really educate the public in general. It's so tough here. It's so tough. These things will exist and then they will shut down, you know. Um, there's so much stigma around addiction yep. here. I know it's the same all over the world, but it's very, very deep. It's very deep-seated here. Um, and there's just, I wish, my whole goal is to put something together here that's actually going to reach the youth, that's also going to reach the parents, and that's going to reach the still-suffering addict when they're ready, you know? There's NA, there's a lot of this stuff, but there's nothing that's almost, there's no real, there's no treatment that's available or um, a place for people to go or anything. There's nothing that's reaching the people where they need to be reached. And how, let me ask you this, because in the United States, we have, we do have a major problem, right? With school districts allowing us in, especially high schools, um, because our message is too tough. It's too hard. We're just putting drug thoughts into kids' minds. Too real. Too real, you know. A friend of mine and I are actually doing that here, um, which we're starting soon. Um, They're very open to that here. It's unbelievable. It's I've I've spoken at a few schools recently, and it doesn't matter where people that people want the help, and it's quite open-minded in terms of you know being really raw and honest when you get on that stage at a school and you speak to the kids. Um, and what we do is we make sure that the teachers and the parents understand what it's about, and even mm-hmm. want to do separate talks. So it would be talks for for the kids with the kids, not even for right. the kids with them. And then separate talks with teachers and parents. Um, but they're very open to those talks here. Very, very open. Would you oh, would good. you get would you get enough parents showing up for these? Yes, we would at some of the schools. At some of the schools. Sure. Um what helps is that the one person that I'm going to be doing with it, doing it with is quite well known and um quite like renowned in that area. So I think a lot of the parents would go in, would like that he's got that pool and just parents are desperate, hey? Parents are desperate. Yep. I think especially now, I mean, we didn't grow up with social media or anything like that. But these parents must be, can you imagine the fear? Oh my God, do you have kids? I don't know. I don't have kids. But the fear around it must be absolutely terrifying. And I think they're actually desperate for people to come in. So I think there would be a lot of parents. I think a lot of the kids would want to be in on these talks. I think kids are curious. They've got shows like Euphoria and all of this kind of stuff, which in a way glamorizes, even though it tells the truth of it, you know, they want to, they need to see real people, not characters. Right. Exactly. See, we don't out here, we don't get um, a lot of parent parental involvement um, uh, cause all their heads are up their asses to begin with. <laughs> and, um, and so we have found that that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a big battle, but look, we would love to help you in any way. Hell, I'll even get on a plane. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I'll get on a plane, guys. I will come there. I will come there. <laughs> we're yeah. going to South Africa. We're, Let's go. We're, we're going. I got my real ID. I'm ready. Yeah. We're, yeah, we, yeah. I don't have any more fake IDs. <laughs> I, can, I can do this. I surprisingly have an Irish passport so I can get to America. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have the Jaws syndrome. We're gonna we're gonna yeah. ignore it until it, that great white shark comes up and bites us on the ass. Yeah. And if yeah. people don't start waking up and realize this is something we gotta hunt down, 
Well, okay. Yeah. Guess what? You know when you're going to take notice when it actually hits your house and you go, right. oh, shit. I, they were yeah, right. They were right. Yep. So, exactly. Oh, Lordy. Mr. Anderson. This has been unbelievable. I, I am just thrilled to have met you. Uh, proud of you. Ten years. Man, that is just unbelievably cool. And and oh. and keep it up. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, you're a wonderful young lady. I, I just can't say enough about you. We're not we're not done. I just really want to say thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing, both of you. Like this is just wonderful. And I'm so honored to be able to meet people from all over the world. Like, I mean, Jace, you're like one of my best homies, you know? Like <laughs> for all of this. Just um it's really beautiful. And this is the power of recovery and the recovery community. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. This podcast contains the views and opinions of hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with our content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page.